Welcome back to the program. It's been said that if you live to an old age, in many ways you give up all the things that make you want to live to an old age. At a time when 10,000 boomers a day are reaching retirement age, when the generation that sought to change the world is being changed by the ravages of age, when the cost of care for this huge generation of seniors could bankrupt us personally and as a nation, it's time for a frank conversation to examine where we are and to question whether or not there's a better way forward. My guest, Ai Jin Poo, plunges into the heart of this discussion in her new book, The Age of Dignity. Ai Jin Poo is a 2014 MacArthur Foundation Fellow, a 2013 World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and was named to Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. She is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of the Caring Across Generations campaign. It is my pleasure to welcome Ai Jin Poo here to talk about the age of dignity, preparing for the elder boom in a changing America. Ai Jin Poo, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great having you here. It seems that the fundamental place to start a conversation about aging, particularly with respect to baby boomers, is the fact that as a generation, the boomers, which has always thought of itself as being on the cutting edge of so many discussions over the years, and that really sought to change the world, has been so reluctant in many ways to face up to this conversation about aging and even engage in in really a serious dialogue about it. Yes, we do have this cultural avoidance and uh, fear of aging that's um, very longstanding. Um, And I do think that if ever there was a generation that would transform how we think and feel as a nation about aging, it would be the baby boomers. And we're starting to see some of that happen where you know, people are just living life on their own terms for longer. And if we can start to turn towards the solutions that would actually really support that for the whole generation, then I think we'll be in business. How much of that refusal to talk about it comes from simply a denial about aging, that, that it was inherent really in the DNA of the generation to be youthful, to, you know, originally not trust anyone over 30. Suddenly when it's facing the ravages of age, it's a very deep conflict. Well, I should ask you what you think about that question. I mean, I think that that's probably true, that there's something about this culture-driving generation which perceives itself as on the cutting edge of everything, Mm -hmm. new and fresh and good and changing, I think that that is uh, that is in the DNA of the generation, and to think to associate it with some kind of a decline, which aging is often associated with, mm-hmm. is probably not <laughs> is probably not a, a natural orientation of this generation. But I do think that the way that people are actually living as they age signals that we can start to turn the tide on that. I think. How much of it also has to do with a larger cultural framework, and this even goes beyond the boomers, I think it's it's a larger issue than that, which is how we have always looked at aging in this country, and not, for example, with the same reverence towards age that the Japanese have or that other cultures sometimes bring to it. I think that that's definitely a part of it. There's a a way that we have um, really dismissed older people as um, less than and um, in many ways treated them as disposable. And, um, and what that's done is it's essentially 
really robbed us of the enormous um, gifts that come with multi-generational exchange and engagement in addition to just all the incredible contributions that older people make. And um, and so I think that this part of the the task of at hand is really how do we rethink and shift the way we as individuals feel culturally about aging and and even dying, um, but ultimately, how do we embrace longevity in such a way that is about enhancing our ability to live well longer? I mean, living longer, the fact that we have a longer life expectancy and my grandmother's demographic of 87 and older is the fastest growing demographic in the country, that's actually a good thing. It means longer to live and learn and teach and connect and there's so much opportunity there. Um, And I think that we just need to put the right supports in place and I think people will find that we can live well long into our um, old age. Certainly there's a fear and, and even a sense of that the Woody Allen line that I paraphrased in the introduction that, you know, if we live to an old age, we give up all the things that were the reasons we wanted to live to an old age. <laughs> right. Well, but, you know, there's also things like the fact that um, this generation of millennials, of young people, is more connected to their grandparents than any other generation in history, and they're really invested in what happens and spending time with their grandparents and doing things with their grandparents. And there's a lot of positive change that's coming of this uh, changing generational dynamic in this country. What do you think that that's about? It really is one of the more fascinating cultural trends, this connection between millennials and their grandparents. It's true. We call millennials and boomers the new power couple because between both those two generations, both in terms of their size and in terms of their just cultural leadership, really driving culture change in this country, um, there's so much that's possible between a coming together of those two generations and certainly the question of putting into place the kind of caregiving infrastructure and supports that we need to help people live life on their own terms, um, you know, as they age, that is something that millennials and boomers, if taken on together, can certainly transform. And I think there's a lot of cultural affinity between those two generations, and then there's an actual connection because people have more time and more technological ability to keep in touch, whether it's through Facebook or, um, you know, text messages. I mean, people, I hear all the time um, that the way that they keep in touch with their grandkids is through Facebook. And, you know, so I think that there's advances in technology that have enabled that and then just time. We have more time. The elephant in the room, I suppose, in this whole discussion is the cost of all of this and what it's going to cost as boomers age in terms of the, the help they need, the medical care they need, the, the, the home health care, which you spend a lot of time talking about. Discuss it in the context of, of cost. You know, I think this is, this, is a, this is the crux of the question, is how we understand cost. And today, as it stands we are already paying an enormous cost for long-term care because we have no plan and program to support it. 
So families are paying out of pocket exorbitant fees, impoverishing themselves, depleting their savings to pay for the care that their loved ones need. So if you're very, very wealthy, you can purchase long-term care insurance, but oftentimes that doesn't even cover what you need when you need it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're very, very, very poor, then you can be eligible for Medicaid. Medicaid oftentimes mainly pays for nursing home institution-based care. So there's millions of people in between for whom neither of those options work at all. And then even if one of those do, <laughs> the, one of those options do work, they're fundamentally flawed. So what that means is that we are scrambling, paying out of pocket, losing days work, uh, losing our jobs. Oftentimes family caregivers have to quit their jobs and stay home in order to care for somebody. Um, and we're impoverishing ourselves in the process. Or we're severely underpaying the home care workforce such that they are a whole enormous army of professionals and they earn on average the median income per year is $13,000 per year. How you survive off of $13,000 per year is a massive question. So we are already paying for this. The question is, it's how do we actually do it in such a way that's much more efficient, much more effective, and actually supports what we want and need? And that is, I think, what we're talking about. When I say investment, I mean actually just an organized plan that really takes into account the new reality that we're all dealing with. One of the other problems for boomers is that, and, and it's really the broader result of people living longer in general, is that we're seeing a lot of boomers, and this relates to cost as well, squeezed between the fact that they are aging, they are facing the prospect of retirement and, and health issues and all of the things that go along with aging. At the same time, they're still taking care of aging parents and having that That's responsibility. Right. That's right. And they're oftentimes dealing with um, student loans or other costs of, from their children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a, um, a sandwiching of their own needs, those of their parents, and those of their children. And in this economy, with so many people struggling, um, it is really a tremendous amount of economic pressure. And uh, that is why we have to work together. And that is why public policy solutions are going to be so key here. Because even if all of us were able to get on a really solid financial plan and save I can tell you that I don't think it will be sufficient, and it won't help us seize this moment of opportunity to put into place the kind of infrastructure and support, the kind of workforce, the kind of preparation and training, the kind of support for family caregivers that will actually help us thrive in this new demographic reality. I mean, let's try to move beyond survival here and actually think about how do we live well in this country as the wealthiest nation in the world? How do we make sure that our families can actually live well at every age? How does health care costs fit into that equation as you see it? This is the this is the secret here in this equation is that if we invest in the home care workforce or the caregivers, whether they're family caregivers or professional caregivers, and provide them with the training they need to make sure that people's 
diets fit their medical needs and conditions, that they're taking doctor's orders, they're following doctor's orders, taking medication on time, really monitoring that, being the eyes and ears on the front line for the healthcare professional team, we can actually create a circle of care that really does, I mean, the best prevention really is good caregiving. If we can improve and enhance people's quality of life, there's so much data that shows that it helps us when it comes to monitoring or um, yeah, monitoring chronic illnesses, preventing unnecessary emergency room visits. I mean, these are some of the most expensive costs within our healthcare system, particularly when it comes to the aging, is when we're not managing our health well, and caregivers help to do that. So I think that if we really invest in training, invest in this workforce, professionalizing and strengthening as a professional workforce, we can actually save the entire healthcare system a lot of money and then all of us a lot of heartache. Given how difficult it has been to get this conversation started, as we talked about earlier, and given how slow the infrastructure of public policy moves, is it possible to even make real progress within the context of the time frame that has to happen to deal with these aging boomers? I do think it is possible. I think that there are big, ambitious goals and a vision that we need to move towards. And I think we can take steps right here and now. I'm starting with at our own dinner tables. We are asking people to take this conversation to their dinner table with two simple guiding questions. One is how do we as a family prepare for our future caregiving needs? And the second is what do we imagine will be the joys of caring for one another? And with those two questions, actually entering this whole process from a place of possibility and togetherness, and then helping us take this conversation from one that happens just among families to one that is happening across the entire country about what are our priorities for the future. What are the big challenges that we want to take on together as a country? And we think that this absolutely needs to be one. And then states and cities can also put into place programs that support things like naturally occurring retirement communities, or villages, which are intentional communities that are established to bring older people together to share resources, share costs, even share caregivers. There are so many initiatives and innovations that are happening at the local and state level, at the community level that need support, that are happening. We just need to give them oxygen and let them grow. Are we starting from zero in this, or in fact, if we look around the world, can we see other models that are along the lines of what you're talking about? We can see other models and the seeds of solutions everywhere we turn, including right here in our own backyard. Now, abroad, of course, they're much further along in places like Japan and Germany, where they have universal long-term care that's part of their health care and retirement security programs for older adults. And I think that kind of a holistic approach to supporting our aging populations to live well um, and to continue to be able to live life on their own terms, I mean, I think that that long term is where we need to head. 
Now, in the short term, we have things like in the state of Maine, which is the oldest state in the nation, they've launched a Keep Me Home initiative, which is a comprehensive policy plan to support Mainers to age in place, everything from higher wages to, for caregivers to better transportation systems for older people, more accessible transportation systems. There's a whole range of things we can start doing to help make um, life and our communities more multi-generationally friendly. And um, and in Washington State, we have the, the largest uh, home care training program in the country that is a state-of-the-art facility training 40,000 home care workers per year, elevating the quality of care in that state as well as the wages so that the caregiving professional workforce really does see themselves as professionals on a track, a career pathway, um, and their wages are increasing and reflecting that as well. What do we need to be doing with respect to training of home health care workers, and what can we do within the existing structures that we have? Well, there's a few models that are really wonderful. I just mentioned the Washington State mm-hmm. model. There's great programs in New York State, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, I find that the best training models are the ones where the care that's being provided and the training is really focused on patient-centered care, consumer-directed care, because every every situation that a caregiver is going to walk into is going to be very different. What somebody with early uh, in an early stage of Alzheimer's needs is a very different matter from what they need in a late stage. Um, somebody who's simply growing more frail, what they need is very different from somebody with a chronic illness. And so I think that we need a lot of variation and agility, um, and, and the training should reflect that as well, supporting people with their actual needs in lots of different kinds of environments. What kind of support for all of this is there from the medical community? Well, we have, um, we have a real lack of gerontologists and geriatricians and um, medical professionals who are specializing in um, caring for older adults and the aging. Um, and so that we really need to be valuing that aspect of the medical profession in a way that really incentivizes people to, to pursue it. Um, but ultimately, I think that every medical professional recognizes the value of really good, attentive home care, um, that caregivers are the eyes and ears of, for what's happening with their patients and can really help ensure that quality of life and quality of care are elevated. Um, so I think everyone agrees that that's a win-win and worth investing in. Um, And I think that more and more we're moving towards a community-based model of healthcare where we're really trying to tap into um, family members, communities, um, and and really trying to integrate, have a more holistic approach to healthcare um, that's much more prevention-based. And I think all of that is conducive to what we're talking about. It's really in line with quality of life, and creating a circle of care um, so that it's all integrated and more holistic. What role is there for institutional care, nursing homes and the like? Is there a place for that, and how does that fit into this overall model that you're talking about? 
There are many good nursing homes um, and many really innovative models for nursing homes, like the Greenhouse Project, for example, which has really created a very home-like environment in a nursing home context. Um, so there will always be a role for nursing homes because there will always be some, some segment of our population for whom home-based care does not make sense. Um, and so we should continue to try to strengthen the um, institutional model. But I think the thing that Americans all over the country are calling for is more options to stay at home and in the community, um, more options that are affordable where people can get quality care in their homes. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's both cost-effective and quality of life conducive. Um, so I, nursing homes, yes, part of the equation. And we also need to be building out this other piece of home and community-based care much more comprehensively than we have been. Talk about who health, home health care workers have been. Where have they come from, and where do we need to be recruiting and enlarging this pool? Home care workers are the unsung heroes. Uh, we call them the first first responders. Um, when we think about in any moment of disaster, whether it's a hurricane or um, even just cold weather, um, they're really right there with our loved ones, making sure that they're safe. And they're a very diverse workforce. Um, it's about half women of color, immigrant and African-American and um, and very much reflective of the communities that they serve. Um, and it's a professional workforce. Most people have had some level of training, but the training has been very inconsistent in terms of the content and the method. So there needs to be streamlining of and standardizing, I think, of the preparation that this workforce has. But overall, it's one that takes enormous pride in the work that they do and sees their work as of the utmost importance in sustaining our families and our economy. One of the things you've touched on are the vast differences, even here in our own backyard, even around the country, in terms of this level of care. Talk about it in the context of what we probably will evolve as really great differences in pay for these home health care workers from state to state. Well, the average uh, wages are under $10 an hour for home care workers. And, um, and oftentimes, home care workers are, have a difficult time securing. They're either working too many hours, like 24-7 shifts, or not, enough, not getting enough hours of work. And so it's just incredibly challenging to piece together a living, uh, a real income. And that's one of the things that prevents us from bringing this workforce out of the shadows and creating the kind of professional track and career pathways that we know we need in this in this workforce. So um, it's it's it is all over the map, but I think that when when we start both securing the floor, making sure that all home care workers are protected by basic wage and hour laws, which still is a work in progress, and then raising wages, raising training standards, I think we'll start to see um, more consistency across the board. Where, if anywhere, 
are we finding pushback to any of the things that you've been talking about? I mean, certainly, as we discussed earlier, the movement of public policy to do these things is is a time-consuming and often very difficult process. But where, if anywhere, is the pushback to this? Well, you named it early on. I think people are fearful that this is going to cost the system a lot of money um, and in this kind of austerity climate, um, I think that there's a fear of um, investing in government programs, and and I think that that uh, that that has to do with a lot of the misunderstandings and miscalculations of cost in this equation that we already talked about. Um, we cannot afford not to invest in caregiving for the future. The need is just too great, and we will be forced to bear the cost ourselves individually in ways that are absolutely untenable and unsustainable, or we will force a cost burden onto the home care workforce, which is already working and living in poverty. So we, in in so many ways, I don't think we can afford to not um, invest in this kind of a program going forward. Does technology have any role to play? Is there an element of creative destruction that can be brought to bear in some of this? <laughs> technology absolutely has a role to play. I think that technology, a lot of people actually ask me what I think about caregiving robots. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wasn't going quite that far. But. <laughs> and you know, it's true that they're building them. I would say this. I would say that the role of technology really should be about improving the quality of care that people are receiving and improving the quality of these jobs. These are really difficult jobs. They involve heavy lifting, lots of coordination, tracking, um, and communication, lots of different things that can be facilitated by technology. And so rather than thinking about, can I just hire a robot? You know, how do we think about uh, how we leverage technology to really enhance the work that people are doing, enhance the quality of care and the quality of these jobs? Ai-Jean the book is The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 